Amen. Thank you, worship team, for sharing your gifts with us this morning. Well, if you have a Bible, feel free to open it up to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, you'll find on page 839 in a blue pew Bible if you want to follow along. So I wonder, how many days have you experienced that caused you to go, now this is a day I'll never forget. This is a day I'll never forget. I, I, I have been alive, not exactly, but roughly for 11,000 days. If you're 15 years old, you've been alive for 5,500 days. If you're 50 years old, you have lived to see about 18,000 days. And if you're 75, you have lived, have woken up for 27,000 days. And the vast majority of those days, we have zero memory of. Right? There, there's maybe some days that if you watched an old home video or you saw an old picture, it could kind of spark some vague memories and bring you back to the moment. Um, but there are a few days, probably just a few, that right now you could remember vividly in your mind. And, and like you can remember even small, insignificant details about those days. What were you were thinking and what you were wearing and, and what you ate that day, and how you felt. And I've I found that typically those kind of days fit into one of two categories. It was either a really good day, or it was a really bad day. Some of the best, and perhaps some of the worst. Like I remember some really good days well. Like I, I remember my wedding day very well. I remember the days my children were born. I remember the day I rode New Jersey Transit to work for the last time. <laughs> so some good days. And I also remember some bad days pretty well. I remember 9-11. I remember my grandparents' funerals. Especially this time of year, I remember the day I had to put on a college basketball uniform for the last time. I remember the day we had to rush Kate into the ER when he had a febrile seizure. And, and, and the crazy thing about these days, both good and bad, is again, there's, there's these small kind of aspects of the day that you just will never forget. These, these just little insignificant details. And so likewise, all of you, I'm sure right now, could rattle off days, good and bad, many of which are far more dramatic than my own especially those of you who have what uh, we might call a, a near-death experience. Well, this morning, we're going to read a story of a near-death experience. A, a day that I think we could safely say that this, the disciples of Jesus never forgot. If you're just joining us for the first time this morning, we are preaching verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark that we began back in January, and uh, we're currently in Mark chapter 4. And if you recall from the beginning, uh, I've said that Mark is very vivid. He is very calculated, but he's typically not very detailed in his style of writing. It's, it's traditionally held that Mark wrote his Gospel through the eyes of Peter. 
Mark doesn't come up in the stories of the Gospels at all. There's, there's no indication that he himself was an eyewitness. But, but in the book of Acts, we saw uh, Pete, uh, Mark uh, cross paths with Paul and then Peter and especially latch on with Peter. Uh, and, and we know this uh, from, again, just kind of church history showing us that this was kind of through the eyes of Peter. But also, Mark is the shortest gospel. But Peter is mentioned more in Mark than any of the others. And while in general Mark did not include small detailed descriptions, uh, he was more just worried about kind of broad strokes carrying the story along, uh, today serves as an exception. There's few stories that kind of have these like really vivid details, and I think the reason why we get these vivid details today is because today is a day that Peter never forgot. Today's a day that was burned into his memory, and so we are covering just seven verses this morning in the book of Mark. So join with me as we read this passage, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats who were with him. And a great windstorm, windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace. Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is a very well-known story in the Gospels. It's one of those stories where if you kind of grew up around the Bible and grew up around church, you've probably known since you were a little kid. It's a very popular story to children. And, and in part, that's because it's very conceptually easy to understand. It's a, it's a story that could be explained in 15 seconds. It's, it's simple. And yet I have found that the most well-known stories in the Bible become the most prominent ones that we just kind of gloss over. Yeah, I know that story. And we, we, we miss an opportunity to see what really is God teaching us in it. And, and I'll, I'll put it this way. The primary meaning and application of this story is not that storms in life will arise from time to time, but Jesus will pull you through. That's not necessarily a bad message, but that's not what this passage is about. And that's the way most have probably learned about it, most how we kind of think about it, most how we apply it. So if that's not it, what is it? What's the main meaning of this passage? Any story has five components to it. You have, you have the setting, you have second, the rising action, you have the climax, fourth, you have the resolution, and then fifth and finally, what they call the following action. And so these uh, components are all present vividly in this, these seven verses. And so that's going to be our outline for it this morning as we walk through this story. First, the setting. 
Jesus just finished a long day of teaching in parables to the crowds, parables that we walked through over the last couple of weeks. And then he, he teaches to the crowds, and then he privately explains these parables to the disciples. And the first detail we get from Mark that we usually don't get is, now it's evening. That the sun is going down, the, the, the moon and the stars are coming out, and, and Jesus is looking to get out of town. He's exhausted from teaching. He, he, he's, just, he's around people all the time. Like People are awesome, and we are tiring, aren't we? And so he wants to get away with his disciples, and so he wants to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and we'll see that next week they will arrive on shore in the country of the Gerasenes. And if you read about just kind of geography out there in Israel right now, the, the, the Gerasenes is, is now called present-day Kersey uh, National Park in Israel. And so we can kind of get a visual. What's this trip look like, all right? You can literally go to Google Maps and just map this out. And so I did it, all right? So we have a picture up here. If you have Capernaum, kind of top left, you have Kersey National Park. If you want to take a car, it would take you 20 minutes, all right? That wasn't an option for Jesus back in the day, right? So they're in Capernaum. The quickest way from point A to B is a straight line. All right, we're going by boat. So Jesus says, let's get into the boat, and we're going to the other side. And, and, and so what's this boat look like? What do you visualize when you think about this story? Well, um, we know what this boat looked like. Next picture, this is an image of a Galilean fishing boat. It can fit up to 15 people. It's only 26 feet long. All right, I paced this out last night. Roughly, it's like here to the wall. That's the size of this boat. It's only seven and a half feet wide, and it's only four and a half feet tall. All right, that is our Galilean fishing boat. That's what they're piling into, all right? There's probably 13 of them. They got a couple spots to spare, all right? They get into the boat. They go to the other side. And it looks like we get another detail from Mark. They pile into the boat, and we find there's other boats with them. That detail serves no part in this story. It doesn't come up again. It kind of shows you why uh, a story is uh, realistic, because Peter is giving it to Mark, and he goes, yeah, and there was other boats coming with us, right? Jesus, his primary purpose is to get away from the crowds, but the crowds are smart now. They've seen Jesus. He's a flight risk, all right? So they're, they're prepared, all right? Papar- paparazzi boats are ready. They're, they get in and we're going, we're going with you, all right? We don't trust you. You didn't come back for months last time. And so there's other boats with them, and off they go. That's your setting. Next to the rising action, verse 37, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. On the cushion, actually. So if you read up on the Sea of Galilee, uh, you'll find it sits 700 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded by several mountains and mountain ranges that vary in elevation. And so what that means, uh, I looked it up, I didn't just know this offhand, is that you have downdrafts of cold air coming from the mountains. And you have warm air uh, coming up in the Sea of Galilee. And when those two things collide, it has the potential to create these fast-forming, impressively powerful thunderstorms. And this storm emerges at night when they're on their way across the sea. Clouds overtake them. Clouds overtake the moon and stars. Wind is pushing them all around to the point where now the waves are crashing in. And remember... At least four of these disciples are experienced fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. 
they are, I imagine, very familiar with these, wedi- with these weather patterns and with this sea. And I'm sure they have weathered many storms in their lives. And so they are start barking out orders to one another, how to dump water out of the boat, how to stay afloat. But this storm must have been a monster. Because now this scene is chaos. And you can picture it. In this boat, from just here to there, all soaked, all trying to shovel water out, all trying to stay afloat. And all the while, Jesus is passed out. And you notice, Mark doesn't just say he's asleep, but it's the details. He's in the stern, the back of the boat, and he's on the cushion. Probably the one cushion, right? Understandable that Jesus got that prime real estate, all right? He just taught all day. He was the one up on his feet all day. So they get into the boat, and he sleeps on the cushion. And this boat is now becoming overcome with water. And now, I don't know if you have experience with this. I don't know if you've ever been on a boat, especially a small boat, in a big storm. It looks terrifying in the movies, all right? That's all I know. And it looks a little bit bumpy. And everyone's always soaked, all right? And yet... Jesus is sleeping, cozied up in the back, head on a cushion. A couple things before we move on. Mark does a great job of displaying the humanity of Jesus here. A pillar, a pillar of Christian theology is that Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. It's not 50-50. He was not some strange combination tossed together. It's that he had every attribute of mankind with the lone exception of the fact that he was without a sin nature. And so part of what that means is that Jesus got tired. His eyes got heavy. His head was probably spinning after a long day of teaching, and he just gets into the boat, goes to the back, and passes out. I especially appreciate reading about the humanity of Jesus because it brings strange encouragement to me. The book of Hebrews says he can relate to you in every single way, tempted in every way. And and I know when I get home on Sunday afternoons after uh, a service and preaching, whatever meetings else there might be, you can ask Rochelle, I'm like a shell of myself for at least two to three hours. Like there's just nothing going on up there. All right, like don't call me on a Sunday afternoon. I'm not going to be of help to you. I probably won't even know who you are, right? I'm just wandering aimlessly around the house like, oh, that's nice. You know, like words barely legible, physically, mentally just got nothing left. Like I can't imagine preaching all day. Jesus was tired. Jesus needed to sleep. And he gets in the boat and he quickly enters that REM cycle. I don't know if snoring is a part of the fall, all right? Some of your wives are like, yes, it is, all right? There's no chance that they were snoring in the garden, all right? But if it wasn't, he was even snoring, right? Just mouth open, head on the cushion, and this is the only verse in your Bible that we're told about Jesus sleeping. Another thing to observe is that Jesus is fully at rest while the disciples, including experienced fishermen, are freaking out. So that's partly due to the fact of how tired he was, but there's another layer here. Perhaps he was sleeping because of how at rest his soul was in trusting in the care of his father. So Jesus was sleeping because he was human. But I think Jesus was sleeping through the storm because he was perfectly human. 
The Bible speaks often about the gift of sound, restful sleep that flows from a trust in the Lord. Now, I want to be very careful here, right? I'm not saying that anyone who struggles with sleep has weak faith. All right, there are numerous physical and emotional reasons why sleep might be difficult, but from Scripture, it's very clear and evident that there's also a spiritual connection to good, sound sleep. The Bible affirms this connection um, in Psalm 3, written by David. It starts with, O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me, and then it goes on to say, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. I lay down and slept, and I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. The very next psalm, Psalm 4, likewise starts in complete distress when David cries out, Be gracious to me and hear my prayers. How long will my honor be turned to shame? But it ends like this in in verse 8, In peace... I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Proverbs 3:24 If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Jesus slept because he was human, but he slept through this storm because he was perfectly human. Well, let's keep going. From the rising action to the climax. Back half of verse 38. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This is the emotional and climatic peak of this story. The, the, the disciples are in a situation where they are facing something they cannot control. They're up against nature. This fierce storm. And, and the human reaction to things outside of our control is fear. This is the heart of fear. When you find yourself overpowered, find yourself outmatched, find yourself in an unmanageable situation where we are not in control and where control decreases, fear increases. Think about this. What are your biggest fears in life? What are some of your greatest fears? The level of our fear is in direct contrast to our level of control in any given situation. When control decreases, fear increases. And this is a life or death situation the disciples are in. And and so, I mean, reading this, I kind of get it, don't you? Like there are, I understand the reaction on a human level. And and throughout the Gospels, there's going to be situations where the disciples are going to be confused and they don't get it. And there's going to be certain times where you're going to read it, you're going to go, come on guys, pull it together. Like, let's go. Like, I mean, just uh, how do you not understand that? But, but then there are times like this one where you're kind of like, yeah, I kind of get it. I can empathize with that. I'd probably be freaking out too. And we get the first of a series of questions in this passage. Teacher, do you not care? Don't you care where we're about to die? They were bothered that Jesus wasn't bothered. They were panicking as to why Jesus wasn't panicking. Like, we're just going to die now, Jesus? This is how it's all going to end, like this. All that talk that you just did about the kingdom going forth and emerging and all that talk of victory and growth, and we're going to die here. And did you notice the personal tone 
The question was not, hey, Jesus, can you help? We could use another man here. It was, Jesus, don't you love us? Don't you love us enough to not let us die? It's personal. It, it's, it's resentful, even. It, it's, it's, it's bitter. We're here sinking, and Jesus, you just seem indifferent to this whole thing. Like you couldn't care less. It's so easy to see where we fit in with the disciples in this text. Especially in surprising situations that seem to come out of nowhere, our responses are revealing. And our responses are often fury over faith. Where are you, God? I thought you loved your people. That's what they talk about in church. I thought, I thought you care for your people. Like, you're just going to disappear now, really. You're just going to be gone now, in this time. You're going to let me go. I said earlier that the primary message of the story is not that God will just get you through the storms of life unscathed. And the reason why that's not the true meaning is that it overlooks one critical detail that so often just gets overlooked. And that detail is that Jesus is the one who led them into the storm. He led them into this storm. He didn't slip up and fail to know that a storm was about to arise. He didn't fail to look at his weather app and see that it's coming across the mountains. His exhaustion didn't have him just neglectfully forget as they set out on this journey. Jesus allowed the storm to occur and even led his disciples into it. Because you see, the surprises of life are only surprises to us, not to God. Every trial and tribulation we face is allowed by God. If that's not true, then it's, it's not the case that God once in a while just gets outsmarted by Satan. Like, oh, he really slipped one through the cracks. I didn't see that coming. I was out to lunch. He, he, does, he doesn't let Satan just slip some by the, the, the spaces where now we have to suffer the consequences. He's not a neglectful father. And, and that can be difficult to grasp at first. And, and certainly it's difficult in the moment of going through a trial because many, if not most times, we don't understand why he would allow certain things to happen. All the time, I don't understand why he allows certain things to happen to certain people. And in those times, when we don't understand why something is happening, it becomes all the more critical to choose faith over fury. It becomes all the more critical to cling to what we do know, that God never forsakes his people. God never tempts you to do wrong. God never makes us suffer without a purpose. And we do know just objectively from this little story that, that trials are when God most deeply reveals himself to his people. Listen, his disciples would not have remembered this day if it was a cloudless evening with shining moonlight and they just sailed to the other side with no issues. That story wouldn't be in your Bible. No one would have remembered it. But it's the presence of trials that create an opportunity for God's people to see him at work. One of C.S. Lewis's famous quotes is that God whispers to us in our pleasures. 
He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that's exactly what we see next as we move from the climax to the resolution. Verse 39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? This is the simple divine power of Jesus put on display. You notice he didn't wake up in a panic. There was no crazy display of words or flailing of the arms to cook up the power to overcome this storm. No big buildup. He merely wakes up from his slumber, turns to the sea, and says, stop. And at once, it stopped. And Mark says, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And that's not mere redundancy, for the word for calm is a word that's always associated with water. So Mark is saying, the winds stopped, but there was also a great calm on the water. And if you've ever been around a body of water after a storm, it takes hours for the water to return back to normal. Long after the storm passes, the waters are still churning, and it takes a while for that stillness to come back. But here, winds stopped, water calm immediately. If you've been on a lake, you know what complete calmness looks like, where the water is like glass, and you can perfectly see the reflection of anything that is in it. And so now, in the span of a few verses, Mark reveals the character of Jesus Christ. He's, he's fully man. Jesus was tired, and he preferred a cushion when he slept. And he's fully God, where even creation at its fiercest answers to a simple rebuke. There could very well be many reasons we don't know about as to why Jesus would allow this at this time in the life of his disciples, but, but one reason we do know is clear, and that is to spotlight that he, Jesus, is God. Throughout the Old Testament, which these Jewish men would be familiar with, only God could command nature and control it with his sovereign power. So up to this point in his ministry, Jesus has driven away illnesses. But you know what? Prophets like Elijah drove away illness too. And he drove out demons. But surely there are many people, even in their day, who probably claimed and seemed to have some um, success with driving out demons in the spiritual realm. But no one except God himself commands the weather. No one except God has power over nature, and Jesus displays this power right before their eyes, life-threatening winds and waves, and then in a moment, stillness. And the only thing left raging on this boat is the divine power of Jesus Christ. And then he turns his rebuke to the disciples themselves, and he asks a question of his own now. Why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? This will prove to be a recurring theme in the first half of Mark's gospel where the disciples just don't quite get it, right? They just, they just quite can't pinpoint what they're seeing. And, and rather than trusting Jesus, they accuse him of forsaking them. And Jesus is basically saying, fellas, you should know better by now. And that leads us finally to the following action. Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and 
the sea obey him? The story ends with a question, leaving it open-ended both for the disciples and for all those who would come after it, those like you and me. And it's not an overstatement to say this is the most important question. The question of all questions. The irony being that a story about a life and death situation leads to the question that holds eternal life or eternal death in the balance. Who then is this? Who is he? Who is this Jesus? It's the question of all questions. And notice, the disciples were afraid of the storm, but now... They're terrified of Jesus. The following action is not wild celebration like you might expect. It's not extreme relief and Peter and James like, up top, man, that was close. Jesus really had us going there. But woo, we're good. No, silence, great fear. Why? Why are they so afraid? Remember, when the illusion of control decreases, fear increases. The storm was out of their control. The storm proved to be unmanageable, so they became afraid. And now, likewise, listen, if the storm was out of their control, then the man who can quiet a storm is as unmanageable as the storm itself. It was such a display of instant power that made them see that, wow, this man cannot be controlled. This man cannot be manipulated, he cannot be tricked, he cannot be tamed, he cannot be tied down. Jesus is God and he answers to no man. That truth alone will preach in our culture today. Where many, even in the church, act as if they have Jesus pinned in a corner. Yeah, I got that Jesus thing down, we're, we're good. I put him in my debt by my actions and the way I live. Jesus is on a string, more often than not, treated like a puppet than a god. And anybody who does that is deceived by their own false illusions of control. People don't fear Jesus as God because they place themselves over God. We call the shots. God answers to me. But in a moment where God gives you the grace to see his power, those illusions of control will disappear in a second. And all that remains is the question of all questions, who is this? When we began Mark, I explained that the Gospels are these portraits of Jesus that spotlight who he is and what he's done, but, but that every Gospel ought to be read in light of the fact that we know the ending of the story. That we know Jesus is the Christ. And that means every verse and every passage needs to be understood in the shadow of the cross. So the disciples ask this question and leave it open-ended. But church, we can full, more fully understand what is happening here. And so I want to close this morning by connecting the dots of this story. Perhaps when it was read or during the sermon, you may have thought to yourself, this looks a little familiar. Did you think that? This scene looks familiar. This has happened before in the Bible. This reminds me of a story in the Old Testament. In the book of Matthew, Jesus refers to himself as the true and better Jonah. 
And you read that, and you're like, what's he kind of mean by that? I'm the true and better Jonah. Uh, if, if you're not aware, the story of the prophet Jonah is featured in an Old Testament book that's named after him. Of, of, and, and the reason why these, uh, this should remind you is that these are kind of parallel stories. And while the reason why the storm comes is different, they, there's so much about them that are the same. Like Jesus, Jonah was in a boat with skilled sailors in the midst of a storm. And like Jesus, Jonah was asleep in the boat. And the sailors woke Jonah and said this, Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought of us that we might not perish. Paraphrase, why are you sleeping? Wouldn't your God care that we're about to die? And in both stories, there was miraculous divine intervention where God calmed the waters, and like the disciples, the sailors in Jonah's story were even more afraid of the Lord after the storm than they were in the midst of it. The one difference in the two stories is that while Jesus stood and calmed the sea himself, Jonah had to be thrown overboard and swallowed up by a fish for three days before he was spit out on dry land. Jonah had to be a sacrifice. So the difference is that Jesus did not need to be overthrown thrown overboard to calm this storm. He just stopped it himself. But listen to me. Here's where this story dances. Here's where we get to the true main point. While Jesus was not sacrificed by being thrown out of the boat, when we see the rest of Jesus' life and take it into consideration, Mark is putting forth a powerful statement here. Jesus is saying, I've come to overcome the ultimate storm you face. I've come to be a sacrifice. I'm the true and better Jonah. The storm of death and the storm of sin and the storm of eternal destruction, that is the stormy sea I'm going to be thrown into. Jesus was thrown in by being sent into the world to go to the cross to calm the storm of God's justice against sin and rebellion, to be the sacrifice and die so that those who place their faith in him may experience true peace from the storm. The meaning of this story is not that Jesus will calm all the storms in your life. The meaning is that Jesus took the ultimate storm upon himself so that you may have life. All of us eventually will lose our fight against nature. Might happen now, it might happen when you're 97. All of us will eventually face a so-called storm in this world that we will not survive. Nature will run its course and our bodies will fail at some point. But with this truth of Christ, we can face the lesser storms and the trials of life. We experience here and now as crazy and as how deeply painful they are. And we can deal with them with faith and trust in him because he has already quieted the only storm that could truly destroy us. He has already quieted the only storm that could truly destroy us. And that is the storm of eternal judgment. So when we do face trials, and we will, we don't need to respond with fury or resentment toward God, but rather we can see them as an opportunity to see God at work, to strengthen faith, to deepen our trust, to double down on the goodness and love of our God who sent his son to pay our price and free us for all of eternity. Where control decreases, 
fear increases. Where fear increases, we search desperately for safety. And the only place we are truly safe in this world is in the will of God. Greg Laurie said it like this. It's better to be in a storm with Jesus than anywhere else without him. Give me Jesus every time. And let us now respond the right way to a simple story in our Bibles that many of us have known since we were kids. Let us respond with reverent worship of the King. Let's pray.